Chapter Five, Part One of Industrial Biography, Iron Workers and Toolmakers by Samuel Smiles. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Clive Catterall. Colebrookdale Ironworks, The Darbys and Reynoldses. The triumph of the industrial arts will advance the cause of civilization more rapidly than its warmest advocates could have hoped and contribute to the permanent prosperity and strength of the country far more than the most splendid victories of successful war. C. Babbage, The Exposition of 1851 Dud Dudley's invention of smelting iron with coke made of pit-coal was, like many others, born before its time. It was neither appreciated by the ironmasters nor by the workmen. All schemes for smelting ore with any other fuel than charcoal made from wood were regarded with incredulity. As for Dudley's Metallum Martis, as it contained no specification, it revealed no secret, and when its author died, his secret, whatever it might be, died with him. Other improvements were doubtless necessary before the invention could be turned to useful account. Thus, until a more powerful blowing furnace had been contrived, the production of pit-coal iron must necessarily have been limited. Dudley himself does not seem to have been able to make more on an average than five tons a week, and seven tons at the outside. Nor was the iron so good as that made by charcoal, for it is admitted to have been especially liable to deterioration by the sulphurous fumes of the coal in the process of manufacture. Dr. Plot, in his History of Staffordshire, speaks of an experiment made by one Dr. Bluestone, a high German, as the last effort made in that county to smelt iron ore with pit-coal. He is said to have built his furnace at Wensbury, so ingeniously contrived that only the flame of the coal should come to the ore with several other conveniences, that many were of opinion he would succeed in it. But experience, that great baffler of speculation, showed it would not be. The sulphurous vitriolic steams that issue from the pyrites, which frequently, if not always, accompanies pit-coal, ascending with the flame and poisoning the ore sufficiently to make it render much worse iron than that made with charcoal, though not perhaps so much worse as the body of the coal itself would possibly do. Dr. Plot does not give the year in which this last effort was made. But as we find that one Dr. Frederick de Blueston obtained a patent from Charles the Second on the 25th of October, 1677, for a new and effectual way of melting down, forging, extracting and reducing of iron and all metals and minerals with pit-coal and sea-coal, as well and effectually as ever hath been done by charcoal, and with much less charge. And as Dr. Plot's history, in which he makes mention of the experiment and its failure, was published in 1686. It is obvious that the trial must have been made between those years. As the demand for iron steadily increased with the increasing population of the country, and as the supply of timber for smelting purposes was diminishing from year to year, England was compelled to rely more and more upon foreign countries for its supply of manufactured iron. The number of English forges rapidly dwindled and the amount of home production became insignificant in comparison with what was imported from abroad. Yarrington, writing in 1676, speaks of 
the many ironworks laid down in Kent, Sussex, Surrey, and in the north of England, because the iron of Sweetland, Flanders, and Spain coming in so cheap, it cannot be made to profit here. There were many persons, indeed, who held that it was better we should be supplied with iron from Spain than make it at home, in consequence of the great waste of wood involved by the manufacture. But against this view Yarranton strongly contended, and held what is as true now as it was then, that the manufacture of iron was the keystone of England's industrial prosperity. He also apprehended great danger to the country from want of iron in event of the contingency of a foreign war. When the greatest part of the ironworks are asleep, said he, if there should be occasion for great quantities of guns and bullets, and other sorts of iron commodities for a present unexpected war, and the sound happened to be locked up, and so prevent iron coming to us, truly we should then be in a fine case. Notwithstanding these apprehended national perils arising from the want of iron, no steps seem to have been made to supply the deficiency, either by planting woods on a large scale, as recommended by Yarranton, or by other methods, and the produce of English iron continued steadily to decline. In 1720-30 to 30, there were found only ten furnaces remaining in blast in the whole forest of Dean, where the iron smelters were satisfied with working up merely the cinders left by the Romans. A writer of the time states that we then bought between two and three hundred thousand pounds worth of foreign iron yearly, and that England was the best customer in Europe for Swedish and Russian iron. By the middle of the eighteenth century the home manufacture had so much fallen off that the total production of Great Britain is supposed to have amounted to not more than eighteen thousand tons a year, four-fifths of the iron used in the country being imported from Sweden. The more that the remaining ironmasters became straitened for want of wood, the more they were compelled to resort to cinders and coke made from coal as a substitute and it was found that under certain circumstances this fuel answered the purpose almost as well as charcoal of wood. The coke was made by burning the coal in heaps in the open air, and it was usually mixed with coal and peat in the process of smelting the ore. Coal by itself was used by the country smiths for forging whenever they could procure it for their smithy fires, and in the Midland counties they had it brought to them, sometimes from great distance, slung in bags across horses' backs, for the state of the roads was then so execrable as not to admit of its being led for any considerable distance in carts. At length we arrive at a period when coal seems to have come into general use, and when necessity led to its regular employment both in smelting the ore and in manufacturing the metal. And this brings us to the establishment of the Coalbrookdale Works, where the smelting of iron by means of coke and coal was first adopted on a large scale as a regular method of manufacture. Abraham Darby, the first of a succession of iron manufacturers who bore the same name, was the son of a farmer residing in Wrensnest near Dudley. He served an apprenticeship to a maker of malt kilns near Birmingham, after which he married and removed to Bristol in 1700, to begin business on his own account. Industry is of all politics and religions. Thus Dudley was a royalist and a churchman, Yarranton was a parliamentarian and a presbyterian, and Abraham Darby was a Quaker. At Bristol he was joined by three partners of the same persuasion, 
who provided the necessary capital to enable him to set up works at Baptist Mills near that city, where he carried on the business of malt mill making, to which he afterwards added brass and iron founding. At that period cast-iron pots were in very general use, forming the principal cooking utensils of the working class. The art of casting had, however, made such small progress in England that the pots were for the most part imported from abroad. Darby resolved, if possible, to enter upon this lucrative branch of manufacture, and he proceeded to make a number of experiments in pot-making. Like others who had preceded him, he made his first moulds of clay, but they cracked and burst, and one trial failed after another. He then determined to find out the true method of manufacturing the pots, by travelling into the country from whence the best were imported, in order to master the grand secret of the trade. With this object he went over to Holland in the year of 1706, and after diligent inquiry he ascertained that the only sure method of casting Hiltonware, as such castings were then called, was in moulds of fine dry sand. This was the whole secret. Returning to Bristol, accompanied by some skilled Dutch workmen, Darby began the new manufacture, and succeeded to his satisfaction. The work was at first carried on with great secrecy, lest other makers should copy the art, and the precaution was taken of stopping the keyhole of the workshop door while the casting was in progress. To secure himself against piracy, he proceeded to take out a patent for the process in the year 1708, and it was granted for the term of fourteen years. The recital of the patent is curious, as showing the backward state of English iron-founding at the time. It sets forth that, whereas our trusty and well-beloved Abraham Darby of our city of Bristol, Smith, hath by his petition humbly presented to us, that by his study, industry, and expense, he hath found out and brought to perfection a new way of casting iron-bellied pots, and other iron-bellied ware, in sand only, without loam or clay, by which such iron pots and other ware may be cast fine, and with more ease and expedition, and may be afforded cheaper than they can be by the way commonly used, and in regard to their cheapness, may be of great advantage to the poor of this our kingdom, who for the most part use such ware, and in all probability will prevent the merchants of England going to foreign markets for such ware, from whence great quantities are imported, and likewise may in time supply other markets with that manufacture of our dominion, etc., grants the said Abraham Darby the full power and sole privilege to make and sell such pots and ware for and during the term of fourteen years thus ensuing. Darby proceeded to make arrangements for carrying on the manufacture upon a large scale at the Baptist Mills, but the other partners hesitated to embark more capital in the concern, and at length refused their concurrence. Determined not to be balked in his enterprise, Darby abandoned the Bristol firm, and in the year 1709 he removed to Colbrookdale in Shropshire, with the intention of prosecuting the enterprise on his own account. He took the lease of a little furnace which had existed at the place for more than a century, as the records exist of a smith or smith-house at Colbrookdale in the time of the Tudors. The woods of oak and hazel, which at that time filled the beautiful dingles of the dale, and spread in almost a continuous forest to the base of the Rekin, furnished abundant fuel for the smithery. As the trade of the Colbrookdale firm extended, these woods became cleared, 
until the same scarcity of fuel began to be experienced that had already desolated the forests of Sussex, and brought the manufacture of iron in that quarter to a standstill. It appears from the Blast Furnace Memorandum Book of Abraham Darby, which we have examined, that the make of iron at the Colbrookdale foundry in 1713 varied from five to ten tons a week. The principal articles cast were pots, kettles, and other hollow ware, direct from the smelting furnace. The rest of the metal was run into pigs. In course of time we find that other castings were turned out. A few grates, smoothing irons, door frames, weights, baking plates, cart bushes, iron pestles and mortars, and occasionally a tailor's goose. The trade gradually increased, until we find as many as a hundred and fifty pots and kettles cast in a week. The fuel used in the furnaces appears, from the Derby Memorandum Book, to have been at first entirely charcoal, but the growing scarcity of wood seems to have gradually led to the use of coke, braise or small coke, and peat. An abundance of coals existed in the neighbourhood. By rejecting those of inferior quality, and coking the others with great care, a combustible was obtained better fitted even than charcoal itself for the fusion of that particular kind of ore which is found in the coal measures. Thus we find Darby's most favourite charge for his furnaces to have been five baskets of coke, two of braise, and one of peat. Next follow the ore, and then the limestone. The use of charcoal was gradually given up as the art of smelting with coke and braise improved, most probably aided by the increased power of the furnace blast, until at length we find it entirely discontinued. The castings of Colebrookdale gradually acquired a reputation, and the trade of Abraham Darby continued to increase until the date of his death, which occurred at Maidley Court in 1717. His sons were too young at the time to carry on the business which he had so successfully started, and several portions of the works were sold at a serious sacrifice. But when the sons had grown up to manhood, they too entered upon the business of iron-founding, and Abraham Darby's son and grandson, both of the same name, largely extended the operations of the firm, until Colebrookdale, or, as it was popularly called, Bedlam, became the principal seat of one of the most important branches of the iron trade. There seems to be some doubt as to the precise time when pit-coal was first regularly employed at Colebrookdale in smelting the ore. Mr. Scrivener says, Pit-coal was first used by Mr. Abraham Darby in his furnace at Colebrookdale in 1713. But we can find no confirmation of this statement in the records of the company. It is probable that Mr. Darby used raw coal, as was done in the Forest of Dean at the same time, in the process of calcinating the ore, but it would appear from his own memoranda that coke only was used in the process of smelting. We infer from other circumstances that pit-coal was not employed for the latter purpose until a considerably later period. The merit of its introduction, and its successful use in iron smelting, is due to Mr. Richard Ford, who had married a daughter of Abraham Darby and managed the Colebrookdale works in 1747. In a paper by the Reverend Mr. Mason, Woodwardian Professor at Cambridge, given in the Philosophical Transactions for that year, the first account of its successful employment is stated as follows. Several attempts have been made to run iron ore with pit-coal, and he, Mr. Mason, thinks it has not been succeeded anywhere, as we have had no account of it being practised. 
but Mr. Ford, of Colbrookdale in Shropshire, from iron ore and coal, both got in the same dale, makes iron brittle or tough as he pleases, there being cannon thus cast so soft as to bear turning like wrought iron. Most probably, however, it was not until the time of Richard Reynolds, who succeeded Abraham Darby II in the management of the works in 1757, that pit-coal came into large and regular use in the blasting furnaces, as well as the fineries of Colebrookdale. Richard Reynolds was born at Bristol in 1735. His parents, like the Darbys, belonged to the Society of Friends, and he was educated in that persuasion. Being a spirited, lively youth, the old Adam occasionally cropped out in him, and he is even said, when a young man, to have been so much fired by the heroism of the soldier's character that he felt a strong desire to embrace a military career. But this feeling soon died out, and he dropped into the sober and steady rut of the society. After serving an apprenticeship in his native town, he was sent to Colebrookdale on a mission of business, where he became acquainted with the Darby family, and shortly after married Hannah, the daughter of Abraham II. He then entered upon the conduct of the iron and coal-works at Ketley and Horsehay, where he resided for six years, removing to Colebrookdale in 1763 to take charge of the works there on the death of his father-in-law. By the exertions and enterprise of the Darbys, the Colebrookdale works had become greatly enlarged, giving remunerative employment to a large and increasing population. The firm had extended their operation far beyond the boundaries of the Dale. They had established foundries at London, Bristol, and Liverpool, and agencies at Newcastle and Truro, for the disposal of steam-engines and other iron machinery used in the deep mines of those districts. Watt had not yet perfected his steam-engine, but there was a considerable demand for pumping-engines of Newcomen's construction, many of which were made at the Colebrookdale works. The increasing demand for iron gave an impetus to coal-mining, which, in its turn, stimulated inventors in their improvement of the power of the steam-engine. For the coal could not be worked quickly and advantageously unless the pits could be kept clear of water. Thus one invention stimulates another. And when the steam-engine had been perfected by Watt, and enabled powerful blowing apparatus to be worked by its agency, we find that the production of iron, by means of pit-coal being rendered cheap and expeditious, soon became enormously increased. We are informed that it was while Richard Reynolds had charge of the Colebrookdale works that a further important improvement was effected in the manufacture of iron by pit-coal. Up to this time the conversion of crude or cast iron into malleable iron bar had been effected entirely by means of charcoal. The process was carried on in a fire called a finery, somewhat like that of a smith's forge the iron being exposed to the blast of a powerful bellows and in constant contact with the fuel. In the first process of fusing the ironstone, coal had been used for some time with increasing success. But the question arose whether coal might not be used with effect in the second or refining stage. Two of the foremen, named Cranage, suggested to Mr. Reynolds that this might be performed in what is called a reverberatory furnace in which the iron should not mix with the coal, but be heated solely by the flame. Mr. Reynolds greatly doubted the feasibility of the operation, but he authorised the Greenwich to make an experiment of their process, 
the result of which will be found described in the following extract of a letter from Mr. Reynolds to Mr. Thomas Goldney of Bristol, dated Colbrookdale, 25th of April, 1766. I come now to what I think a matter of very great consequence. It is some time since Thomas Cranage, who works at Bridgenorth Forge, and his brother George of the Dale, spoke to me about a notion they had conceived of making bar-iron without wood charcoal. I told them, consistent with the notion I had adopted, in common with all others I had conversed with, that I thought it impossible, because the vegetable salts in the charcoal, being an alkali, acted as an absorbent to the sulphur of the iron, which occasions the red-short quality of the iron, and pit-coal abounding with sulphur would increase it. This specious answer, which would probably have appeared conclusive to most, and which, indeed, was what I really thought, was not so to them. They replied that from the observations they had made, and repeated conversations together, they were both firmly of opinion that the alteration from the quality of pig-iron into that of bar-iron was effected merely by heat, and if I would give them leave they would make a trial some day. I consented, but I confess, without any great expectation of their success. And so the matter rested some weeks, when, it happening that some repairs had to be done at Bridgenorth, Thomas came up to the Dale, and with his brother made a trial in Thomas Tilly's air-furnace, with such success as I thought would justify the erection of a small air-furnace at the forge, for the more perfectly ascertaining the merit of the invention. This was accordingly done, and a trial of it has been made this week, and the success has surpassed the most sanguine expectations. The iron put into the furnace was of old bushes, which thou knowest are always made of hard iron, and the iron drawn out is the toughest I ever saw. A bar of one and one quarter inch square, when broke, appears to have very little cold short in it. I look upon it as one of the most important discoveries ever made, and take the liberty of recommending thee and earnestly requesting thou wouldst take out a patent for it immediately. The specification of the invention will be comprised in a few words, as it will only set forth that, a reverberatory furnace being built of a proper construction, the pig or cast iron is put into it, and without the addition of anything else than common raw pit-coal, is converted into good malleable iron, and being taken red-hot from the reverberatory furnace to the forge-hammer, is drawn out into bars of various shapes and sizes, according to the will of the workman. Mr. Reynolds's advice was implicitly followed. A patent was secured in the name of the brothers Cranage, dated 17th of June, 1766, and the identical words in the above letter were adopted in the specification, as descriptive of the process. By this method of puddling, as it is termed, the manufacturer was thenceforth enabled to produce iron in increased quantity and at a large reduction in price. And though the invention of the Cranages was greatly improved upon by onions and subsequently by court, there can be no doubt as to the originality and the importance of their invention. Mr. Tyler states that he was informed by the son of Richard Reynolds that the wrought iron made at Colbrookdale by the Cranage process was very good quite tough, and broke with a long, bright, fibrous fracture. That made by court afterwards was quite different. Though Mr. Reynolds's generosity to the Cranages is apparent in the course which he adopted, in the securing for them a patent for the invention in their own names, it does not appear to have proved much advantage to them, 
and they failed to rise above the rank which they occupied when their valuable discovery was patented. This, however, was no fault of Richard Reynolds, but was mainly attributable to the circumstance of other inventions in a great measure superseding their process, and depriving them of the benefits of their ingenuity. End of chapter 5, part 1